Hi, this is Kalia Colston. And I'm Dylan Bird. And this is the podcast of Triple R's The Grapevine, a weekly current affairs radio show putting local issues in a global context. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Monday. Hope you enjoy the podcast. And if you have any feedback or would like to connect, hit us up via the Triple R website. And if you're a regular community radio listener, you'll know about the Community Cup charity football game, which happens once a year. It's the mighty megahertz versus the rock dogs. And in recent years, it's been held over at Victoria Park, but not last year. Uh, Well, the charity behind that event is RecLink Australia. They also run an extensive program of sport, recreation and arts activities for disadvantaged communities across the country. Like lots of clubs, they're finally able to ramp up for 2021 proper and um, um, that's, of course, after the pandemic pretty much put a halt to most of their programs. And we're really pleased to have RecLink CEO Dave Wells with us this morning. It's great to have you there, Dave. We actually planned to talk to you about five weeks ago or something like that, right when that five-day snap lockdown happened. And so, you know, it was a sort of a, a bit of a wobbly resumption to 2021. But um, tell us how, how you're going now. What's it looking like, the programs that RecLink's running? Yeah, slight delay to the start of the year. Thanks for having me, uh, Dylan and Kalia. Thanks for having me, everyone. Uh, yeah, RecLink, we were just starting to ramp up programs again when suddenly that next delay hit, and it kind of made us a bit more nervous about ramping up programs, but we are running programs all over the state right now, all over the country, in fact, which is fantastic. Um, of course, we balanced lockdowns across various states across Australia, uh, snap lockdowns in, in, in the West and obviously in South Australia as well, and they have all impacted community programs. Uh, community sport as a whole has been impacted. Uh, I talk to state sporting associations and national sporting bodies, and they talk talk about how their community engagement programs have just dropped off entirely over the time of COVID. But we're all getting back on deck now and there should be sport happening somewhere near you, I'm sure. And so, I mean, it sounds like a a really difficult thing to coordinate with, obviously, you know, different social distancing restrictions in different states um, and territories and sort of lockdowns happening at various junctures as well. How have you gone about ensuring that people who might have um, sort of disengaged or, or potentially fallen out of contact with those people who run those programs can sort of get back into it and, and re-engage now that you're starting to, to get back into to running those events? Yeah, that's interesting. Obviously, during COVID, when we, during the lockdown, when we had to shut everything down, the risk was that people would completely disengage from RecLink and its programs. And I'm sure that happened to an extent. I don't know if you know, but I actually started in my role with RecLink in October, which was right in the middle of the lockdown. And I was interested as I came in to see how RecLink had responded to the lockdown and they essentially did two things which kept us really connected to our communities and has made it much easier this end to ramp back up and those two key programs were RecLink Connect which we just took everything online, Uh, yoga programs um, uh, right through to uh, you know, how to do sports in your lounge, how to exercise in your lounge or in your backyard Uh, and we did hundreds and hundreds of programs online which kept us connected into our RecLink participants, which was essential for us. The other thing we did is we started a program called SportShare. It had been ticking along for a number of years, uh, but we really ramped it up. And that's where we took donations from the public and from sporting clubs of quality secondhand goods. We packaged them up into boxes and sent them to families who were locked in in their homes or, or in their 
communities and couldn't get out and didn't have sports equipment to use. And so we started to connect with the community through those ways and made sure people kept active. What that's done is set a really good base for us as we start to ramp up our programs. People have very quickly connected back into RecLink, back into our programs um, and to our local sports coordinators who really are the drivers of RecLink activity, that's for sure. That's really heartening to hear because, I mean, we've you, you've probably seen the sort of news reports and, and sounds like you've also speaking directly to other community programs that particularly kids have dropped out of sports some some codes are reporting you know they're down to a third of participants as they had before the pandemic hit and it sounds like though that you've got these sort of avenues to engage with people but are you seeing numbers drop um, for the kinds of activities that you run over there Dave? Yeah, I mean, obviously they did over COVID, but now they're they're just back. I mean, I just saw our quarterly report. We had 16,000 people come to our programs in the last few months. So it's really ramped back up again very, very quickly uh, post-COVID for us. But I think that's a part of how well our staff did staying connected, you know, uh, beyond the... Um, the online connection, our staff were calling our most high-risk participants uh, on a weekly basis just to make sure they were staying physical, staying safe, being creative still, being connected in in some way. So uh, those participants have come straight back to our programs, which is fantastic. Certainly, as I talk to others, uh, some are reporting a drop-off. We know that uh, young people drop off from sport for a certain age period anyway. I think COVID has sped that up and exacerbated it a bit. Uh, but everyone is working very hard to get people back involved in sport, that's for sure. And, I mean, obviously, you know, RecLink places a, a very strong emphasis on the positive role that sport and arts programs can play in, in helping those who are facing a whole number of challenges in their lives. And, um, you know, 2020 was, was very challenging for a lot of people all around the country. But I suppose looking ahead to 2021, I mean, we know that, um, you know, the Australian economy is starting to pick up, but we're also, um, you know, awaiting the... Uh, cutting of, of JobKeeper and, and job seeker as well, which is going to impact a whole lot of people. What role do you see, I guess, the types of programs you're running in broader kind of social supports for people going forward as we move through the pandemic, um, through the vaccine rollout, but also on the other side? Yeah, it's a great question, Dylan. Um, as 2021 started to emerge, um, I don't know if you know the founder of Reckling, Peter Cullen, he's mm. still very involved with us, still still works with us. He said to me, Dave, you know, Reckling's always been about inclusion and exclusion, and uh, we, we've always talked about isolation to inclusion. And he said, through COVID, uh, and as we emerge out of the lockdown, um, Rickling's historical conversation has become a part of the national conversation. Everyone wants to understand how to do what Rickling has done for many, many years. How do you do inclusion? Uh, and when we run teams or arts programs or events or whatever we're running, we're not running them uh, for a sports body necessarily. We're actually running them for the purpose of inclusion. Uh, so for RecLink, inclusion is one of our key outcomes that we look for. If you're included in a community, uh, that community starts to self-regulate behaviour, starts to impact how people live their lives. Uh, if you're living in community rather than in isolation, you're going to live your life very differently. So yes, we have a, a much broader conversation now coming out of this into what does inclusion look like in the mainstream now that we have realised how tough exclusion is, how tough isolation is? And I think that's what's happened over the last 12 months is people have realised that 
actually, exclusion and isolation is a very, very hard way to live your life. And there's still a whole lot of people who live life like that, pre-COVID, post-COVID. There'll still be groups of people who live like that, but now we all get why the conversation matters a lot, lot more. Yeah, really interesting. Um, Recklink Australia CEO Dave Wells is with us. And I'm, I'm interested, um, Dave, Recklink runs sports and recreation programs, but also arts programs. And are you ramping them up differently? Um, I know that not all arts is in, inside, but a lot of arts programs are in, inside. Does that affect what's, what's possible and how fast that can um, resume compared to the other aspects of your programs? Oh, look, inside programs, it did it did affect it uh, a little at the start, but now I think they're back on a par. Our arts programs are starting back up. Um, most of our arts programs really operate most strongly in Sydney, New South Wales, with some uh, homelessness art competitions and various things like that, which will, it's a bit of a time factor as well. They're due to start ramping up shortly, so uh, they'll be cranking back on very shortly, I'm sure. And what about for people sort of who assist with your activities, volunteers and the like? I mean, are you sort of very much sort of on on the lookout for people who are able to assist at that level too at this stage? Yes, absolutely. Uh, Our our volunteers are a critical part of what we do. You know, our our cricket season is just finishing, our footy season is starting back up now, uh, and it's all volunteer run. Uh, We we coordinate the leagues, but the teams themselves are often coached by volunteers, managed by volunteers, supported by volunteers, so it's critical that we have a really strong volunteer base. Uh, And, of course, all our volunteers now... Um, need to have an understanding of COVID safety and how to run a COVID-safe sports program. So there's a whole range of uh, tasks that we have to do to get that volunteer workforce up to speed, that's for sure. A question without notice, Uh, Dave, many people listening will know Recklink's work with the Community Cup. Any update on what might be happening with the 2021 megahertz rock dog clash? Uh, without notice, but I kind of knew you were going to ask. <laughs> I don't know why you, you might have prepared an answer. <laughs> Look, we, we haven't got a final solution yet. Uh, it is going to be very, very difficult to run the Community Cup as we would have in previous years. Uh, we're erring on the side of running a different type of event and probably something that celebrates, I don't know about you guys, but during COVID, I really connected with my immediate neighbours, my local community a heck of a lot more. Uh, during lockdown than, than, I, than I otherwise would have and made some great relationships and great friendships. So uh, we're going to run an event this year that connects into that and celebrates that element of what the year has been. Uh, what happens with the Community Cup this year is still undecided at this stage, I'm afraid. Well, the Megahertz did declare that we were um, default back-to-back winners last year, given that the, the event was postponed. So if it doesn't happen, then we'll just continue to... That's right, three-peat for us in 2021. <laughs> up the numbers because it was out of balance, They're I think. Very much out of balance. Rock yeah. Dogs has won too many. Yeah. Man, I'm going to pay that, eh? No worries. <laughs> Thanks heaps, Dave. It's really great to meet you and, and, and touch base with Recklink as well. And, um, yeah, I, I guess we'll stay tuned for future announcements with the Community Cup. Yeah, fantastic. Thanks, guys. Lovely to talk to you. Uh, RecLink CEO there, Dave Wells. Update on the border program. Update on Community Cup. And it sounds like um, we should stay tuned. Um, but, yeah, looking different. Let's put that in inverted commas. But we're, we're kind of used to that, aren't we? Triple R on FM, digital, online and via the app. Thanks so much for being here. It means a lot. If you've been reading 
a newspaper recently. You might have noticed that last week uh, local residents in the Albert Park area are applying to restrict school student access to local parklands at playtimes. Uh, the students go to one of the new vertical schools, which means the only playground they have is the local park. This piqued our interest because we love to speak about contested urban spaces with Associate Professor Dave Nichols, who is Senior Lecturer, lecturer in Urban Planning at the University of Melbourne. And uh, it's great to see you, Dave, actually see you. Yeah, yeah, really nice to see you both. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm so glad that you're as excited as we are mm. to be here. Mm. Woohoo! Mm. Out of your house, you know, in the studio. Mm. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm not going to get any weird. excitement. <laughs> yeah, pick it up. <laughs> I forgot you had to get dressed when you went, so that's why I'm just glad that you see you know. Yeah. Yep. Um, all right, well, let's talk about what we're going to talk about then. All right, let's do that. Yeah, yeah, so, well, tell us, I mean, you can probably do a better description than I just did about what the issue is at the moment with regards to sort of kids using public playgrounds mm. uh, as their school playground. I mean, this happens in various different places, um, but yeah. it is becoming you know more expected I guess when we have these vertical schools that don't actually have much space around them and the multi-stories you know. Now you know um, Carly I always like to go back a little bit. Oh please. Uh, if, if you don't if you don't mind I might just go back uh, about 25 years. I uh, remember the uh, the Kennett years in um, Victoria. Mm. The Kennett government uh, sold off uh, you know they were they were responding to uh, a slump in school student numbers so it was it was, wasn't just um, sort of off the cuff and ad hoc. It was actually a, a response to a phenomenon that they weren't noticing. But um, they, they sold off, closed down and sold off a lot of schools um, in particular, no, not particularly in the inner city, but, but you know, the inner city was, was definitely affected. So when, and it was already, it was known even in the early 90s that school um, student numbers would rise again. So it was, um, that was projected in the early 21st century, but that was going to be someone else's problem and it did become someone else's problem. So um, in the early part of this century, uh, places like, you know, South Melbourne, Fitzroy, Coburg, these, these places uh, came to appreciate that they were going to need schools again. And the education authorities had to had to come in and find places for these schools. You know, schools have to be in particular catchment areas. They have to have a certain size and so on. So the phenomenon of the vertical school, which is an international idea that, you know, uh, seemed to suit purposes in, um, in Victoria, came into being. And some of these schools actually, by the way, are really beautiful constructions and they look amazing. But yes, there is always this problem that schools that were established um, 150 years ago or even 100 years or even 50 years ago uh, had um, a kind of a lot of space that the land was cheap. If we're talking in a city, the land was cheap and and they could um, get quite a footprint going. But once, um, once they had to buy in or uh, the education department, or whoever had to buy into uh, these areas again, then um, space is a premium, and so they tend to co-locate these vertical schools near existing public space, which is already you know in short supply. In um, you know if we're talking about inner city areas, so that is absolutely the case with um, Albert Park College, which is close has a has a few campuses close to Gasworks Park and. And yes, there's been um, a lot of conflict with local people, local residents, and uh, school the school and its students over the use of that park. And part of the problem 
which local residents are particularly upset about is that school students, they say, um, don't really respect the park or its other users. Um, and they, you know, not only upset people, but they, um, you know, with, with certain antisocial behaviours, and there were a few incidents um, cited, but they also are kind of destroying the, the park with their, by not sticking to the path and, and stuff like that. With that history you've just described, was there much or, or enough kind of planning put in place to prepare residents to sort of, you know, be prepared to share the public space with, with schools or even local councils that would then have to sort of negotiate when and um, under what circumstances public parkland is used for school-related activities? I, I don't believe so, and this is part of that conflict. I mean, what, what we're looking at with Albert Park College has been a trial period of, like, this, this school students having access to the park particular times of the day. So, you know, I think you said it's cardio, like, uh, lunchtime and, and recess and stuff like that. But um, the... So, you know, there's, there's this, this situation where there are, you know... Uh, I think, I suspect, I'm reading between the lines here, I, I had a listen to the um, the council debate on this uh, from last week at uh, City of Port Phillip. I get the sense, and I'm not saying that, that people aren't justified in their objections, because I, I think there's, um, there's a case on both sides, but I get the sense that there are some very vocal and very upset local residents, and they're probably fairly small in number, um, but that doesn't mean that they don't have a point. Um, and um, so they they may fit into a into a particular category, and maybe the, you know, you get a you get an odd sense because you you know read the comments on the age um, uh, reports on this, and you know ninety percent of people are on the side of you know just let kids be kids kind of stuff, um, but uh, you know that most of those people don't seem to be familiar with the area at all, mm. and I guess you know it is apart from anything else, it's an area where um, space is very uh, hard to come by. So um, you can see why there's why there's upset, but I think that you know in a you know I think you can you can prep people for something, but you know you you can't you know the the lived reality for some people is going to be um, you know just not 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 it's not possible to prepare people for mm-hmm. that. Yeah, and we have heard from um, the acting premier Daniel Molino, who um, you know has been around the education portfolio for James Molino. James, sorry, what did I call him? Daniel. Oh, yeah. sorry, um, Dan you've, Andrews. Dan, you've, sorry. Yeah, you've been Danned. You've been I fully know, Danned, haven't I'm you? Danned. Everyone's um, sorry Danned about to you. Now. Getting, premiers are called Dan. As getting their names saying. mixed yeah, up. Yeah. Um, I've combined them. Um, <laughs> anyway, there's only one Dan. Um, but I, um, you know, the response has been that students should have access to open green spaces. And I think uh, on principle, that's true. I think what's interesting about this and also other vertical schools is that there is an expect- expectation when you put a school of that density in an area that that green space is the public space. And so that's that's the conflict, isn't it? That's the, the contest that we're, we're now in. I wonder, I mean, I, I guess every area is going to resolve this in different ways, but we're going to see this repeated, aren't we? Because there's other areas too. I mean, the, the Princess Hill High School has used Princess Park for a long time as, as a playground. Yeah. There's, they don't also have ovals and no. and I don't know if that's been resolved historically. I don't, I'm not aware of that being an issue anymore. Yeah, I mean Princess Park is a different kind of phenomenon to the Gasworks Park because it's it's huge. Yeah, it's a big so place. You, you sort of get, and, and there's not 
really a massive amount of residents around it, so it's not part of It's not of as big a school area. either, is it? So No, that's yeah. right. So, you know, I mean, you could say to almost anybody who objected to students using Princess Park will go to Royal Park because that's close too. But, um, yeah, no, it will be. That's that's true. So there's that, that aspect of it. One of the things that interested me about this was it's Gasworks Park. So it has, um, it has a history of use as a Gasworks, believe it or not, judging by the, the name, you wouldn't have known, would you? And um, so there's a, there's a lot of contaminants in the soil. So there's this extra thing of, well, if um, students are being, you know, if kids are being kids in that place and kicking up the soil and, and so on, then um, they can be releasing, you know, poisonous chemicals. in and, and, and then you sort of think, well, you know, how much... Yes, one does think, how much care are we actually taking with these public places? If, if all it takes is to scuff up toxic. the grass a little bit, I know, then I exactly. mean, you know. <laughs> Questions were raised at the council meeting, which were really, really interesting. And the answer was also really interesting, which was uh, the state government is doing some tests on the on the, on the the land there to see exactly how toxic it really is. But they don't really know. I mean, Fishman's Bend is the same story where, you know, there's a major amount of development being done and they also have a big school issue as well but um you know once again nobody really knows um and there's uh, so there's a kind of a, a simultaneous like people don't exactly take notice of what's happened in how places have been used in the past uh and but also there's um you know, we just have different standards of, of what we'll tolerate in our uh, environment in the 21st century than we did 50 years ago. I guess we know more mm. and, and we care more. Dave Nichols is our guest. He's Associate Professor in Urban Planning at the University of Melbourne, um, joins us monthly on the show, has done for a long time, for the very first time in studio this year and for the past 12 months or so, which is very exciting. Um, I mean, we've spoken a bit um, over the past year when we've had you on the phone, Dave, about the sort of changing relationship people have had to their locale and, and valuing public space and particularly green space maybe more than they had previously. Is there any kind of aspect to this story, do you think, that you know, people have been around home more. Uh, many people are still working from home and notice when students are using the space when they normally would just be at work and not even know about it. I think so. And I think, well, part of the problem, you know, there's a few, there's a few issues there. And I think uh, one of the things that was said was this was this current situation in the Gasworks Park was a, was a year-long trial, but most of that year was COVID period. So there, no one was trialling anything except, I suppose, local, local people were walking in the park, but kids weren't using it because they weren't attending school so um i mean they weren't you know physically they weren't attending school so uh this has this has come up quite recently uh with the relaxation of restrictions that suddenly you know everybody's dumped in the same space together for the first time in quite a while and it is it's a shock i mean i just just coming here today you know um the traffic issues and you know traffic for instance has got so much worse in the last month or two i don't think i'm telling anyone they anything they don't know but so those those kinds of things that you know and then we're you know i know carly you're excited about getting back to so-called normal but you know um look at all the look at the downside you know and uh so students back on the trams, oh, how annoying. No, well, you know, they're making goat tracks in the park and you know, <laughs> releasing lead into the atmosphere. Um, I don't know, what are, what are we going to do? So, yeah, no, absolutely. I think that's that's totally, it's, it is a bit of a culture shock, I think, going on. Um, and I can't, I can't read the minds of the, of the players in the, um, in the Alp Park College saga, but uh, I, 
I could see that being the case, definitely. Can I um, sort of just take it out of Albert Park for a sec and think about sort of schools and, and this sort of sharing a space in general? I mean, a lot of areas, the, the primary school is where, you know, young men might go and play basketball on the weekends or whatever. So the, the sharing of space goes both ways. Yes. When students aren't using the, the, the state school, the, the community has access to that school after hours or weekends or whatever, and people's kids ride their bikes around, they kick a football or whatever it is that they, they do. Um, so it can go both ways. But would we feel differently about, you know, those that really support the kids using Gasworks Park, would we feel differently if, if it was a private school? Would we have expectation that they provide the playground is it because you know where this is shared community asset the school you know maybe Albert Park College doesn't have basketball courts for the community to use after hours but you know is is that part of this as as well that you know they're they're all state-owned things Mm. um, therefore we must share would we feel differently if it were the other way I understand that uh, it does have a basketball court it's the only recreation facility sort of outdoor recreation place that it has but I don't know whether it's open to the public Mm. at any other time it it better be (laughs) yeah so so there's no that's a it's a really it's a really good question so that kind of co-use thing that that became quite um, uh, no judgment implied but trendy um, you know 10 or 15 years ago of like where well schools only only use their facilities you know eight, eight hours a day so why can't the rest of the community have have that access um, it's a really good point and makes a lot of sense so I think there is some ambivalence about us uh, you know community access to school grounds in some uh, I don't really want to go there but I think there's a there's some you know for some people there's a little bit of nervousness about that but um, Generally, the um, you would think that it would it it could and should cut both ways. But yes, you're right about the private school thing, and that is, you know, and if we look at it historically, and certainly, I think a lot of people are um, who were around 25 years ago um, are saying, well, yeah, well, the Kennett government didn't close any private schools. You know, they closed government schools. They don't run them. They don't, that's right. And so it was a um, it was a situation where those, those are the schools that were, or those are the communities that were disadvantaged in that regard, and um, and and that's where the problem uh, lies. So you know, it's it's a uh, it's a sticky situation, and you can absolutely see why the. I mean, I think in some ways, and this was the kind of you know, council finally you know voted in favour of continuing the trial on the basis that it wasn't. A, um, it wasn't a pro- hadn't been a proper trial anyway in the last twelve months or however long, and um, and the, and there was sort of I think a general summing up was that well really everybody's right um, and the school you know needs to be a little more um, careful about how its students behave because there were some incidents of bad behaviour, boisterous behaviour I suppose you you might call it um, leaning towards the destructive, but um, you know in a in a way, this is like a this is an age-old tale for like centuries of um, you know students, um, you know school students, school kids, um, possibly acting up or, or posing a threat in some way to uh, you know polite society. And uh, it's I I just you know I think it's really really interesting. I don't have any uh, solution. Do any of it? Well, it's did, not... did you want me to have a solution? Because I don't have a That's solution. That's why we oh, got you in here. Good, <laughs> oh, But Good. we did talk to you. We, we did speak um, in the the 
lockdown period about you know the sharing of the golf course in in Northcote and I think these sorts good of comparison. issues mm. come up in different ways and uh, you know in that sense it's good to Evan because there isn't a neat solution which is why mm. it's contested space yeah and it's an issue that's not going away I mean as more schools are built as more and more people live in Melbourne yeah. there's going to be a need for students to use public space I mean what happens if the trial is sort of ended I mean they're not just going to be locked up inside all day surely I mean they've got a basketball court <laughs> yeah they've got a basketball court yeah you know um, look at yeah what is going to happen you know I, I don't think that's a, I don't think that keeping them out of the park is actually tenable I don't think the council could you know could do that I don't think you know it would be it would just be an, that's an impossible situation. The golf course thing, which you mentioned, by the way, is I think that's going to be decided uh, this week. Wow! Uh, or, or there's certainly going to be uh, moved. It's going to be discussed in uh, uh, at local government level. So, so there might be something coming out of that. But you know what? I mean, it's the other part of it is like the densification of the inner city and the increasing, you know, with increasing uh, prices, you know, land prices and housing prices in the inner city and the, the way that people are uh, attracted to the inner city for whatever reason. I'm still not entirely certain what the reason is. Um, then, and there's, so that as this, these places become a premium, then, you know, some people do end up feeling um, super entitled and, you know, I paid, I paid, and this is not, this is not me speaking. This is a hypothetical <laughs> quote. I paid $1.5 million for my house. So therefore, is that all? I deserve to, um, yeah, I, I don't know what house prices are, and, um, yeah. but you know, therefore I deserve, um, you know, quiet enjoyment of my street at all times. Uh, it's not really how a dense inner city works. If you, you've got, you get advantages from the critical mass. You've just got to, you've got mm. to wear it that hell is other people. On that note, thanks for coming in. It's that great was my to see solution, you. Okay, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> got to put up with it. Yeah, you too. Um, and um, yeah, it's really, really nice to to see you in person. Um, Associate Professor Dave Nichols. He'll be back in a month. You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics, and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform. And uh, we've spoken a lot on this program over the past decade about challenges in media models, especially in the way we pay for news. But there are good news stories too about media models and one of them is The Conversation, a website that provides creative commons content and articles written mostly by academics. You might know it. Uh, It started here in Melbourne but has expanded all over the world now and Misha Ketchell is the editor of The Conversation and is joining us next to celebrate that publication's 10th anniversary. Bar Ida, Ligon Street, Brunswick East, have over a decade of experience offering Sicilian-inspired cuisine using seasonal produce. Bar Ida is now open for lunch and dinner from Tuesday to Saturday for dine-in and takeaway. Celebrate with family, work or friends over a Sicilian feast. Bookings and more info at barida.com.au. Triple R Sponsors. Triple R presents Gariel, the opening celebration of the Yalakut Wilam Nagi First Peoples Arts and Cultural Festival. A night of song, dance, ceremony, and immersive art featuring Alice Skye, Bumpy, and Monica Jasmine Caro with string arrangements by Ensemble Dootler and Friends. Thursday, March 25, at Memo Musical in St Kilda. 
Tickets on sale now at ywnf.com.au. City of Port Phillip, Triple R sponsors. The conversation is a regular go-to for many of us here at Triple R when we're trying to find an expert to speak on any number of topics. It's model of pairing professional editors with academics to produce research-based news and analysis in language that's easy to read has been remarkably effective with operations springing up in numerous countries overseas. This year marks the conversation's 10th birthday and with a lot of discussion about misinformation and the future of public interest journalism, it feels right to celebrate an Australian media success story that always leads with the facts. Misha Ketchell is editor of The Conversation and to blow out the candles on its first decade, he joins us now on the line. Misha, welcome to Triple R. Thank you. And so I wonder if you can take us back to when the conversation began in 2011. How did you and others see its role in the media landscape at the time? Well, actually, when the conversation launched, I was working um, at the ABC on a TV program called Media Watch. Um, And I was spending a lot of time critiquing um, bad journalism. And I was spending a lot of time talking to academics and people who had real expertise, who had had bad experiences um, of being misreported or, or misquoted in the media. Um, and really, you know, at, at that time, you know, we could see that there was a real problem with the business models in newspapers. A lot of specialist reporters were leaving um, journalism and the channels for people to really provide sort of quality-informed expert information to a broad public um, were really sort of drying up. And the conversation was really sort of conceived as a way of um, creating a, a way that academics and people who really knew what they were talking about um, could engage with the media, but in a way that they felt safe to do so. So one of the things that we do is when we work with academics, um, we do a lot of work sort of um, editing their copy, that they get final sign-off on it so they can trust that they're going to be accurately presented. And I remember, I mean, I've been doing this program on Triple R, Michelle, for over over a decade, it turns out. And um, I remember, you know, speaking about the conversation and interviewing editors at the time when it, it first launched. And Liz Minchin was a regular voice on this program for some years. She's one of the editors. She she came out of the, the age and went to the conversation. And it was so novel, I remember at the time, to have academic research that was accessible. And I wonder, um, when you look back, do you think the conversation conversation has kind of spurred that on or was it happening already? Because certainly other publications now, you know, we are seeing academics trying to write more for the public than they might have otherwise. Do you, you know, what's the conversation's role in that, do you think? I think there's always been a stream of content from academic experts that is publicly available. Um, You know, universities have always had big media teams. There's a lot of special science publications that do put the information out there. I think the difference with the conversation was it really, by running in a very traditional newsroom way, married the information to the news cycle. Um, So, for example, I've just come out of a news conference then and we're talking about the floods in New South Wales and we're talking about, you know, the latest research on, um, you know, mapping flood-prone areas, um, people with disadvantage affected by floods, psychology of floods. There's a whole bunch of issues where it's really topical right now and we've got three or four academics writing as we speak and we have people writing over the weekend so that you can surface relevant information for people when they want it. And I think that's the big difference. It's really taking that real sort of news culture 
um, of a newsroom to the idea of trying to um, share academic ideas and information when it's relevant. It's a really interesting point because um, I, I guess traditionally academics might be a little bit um, you know, reluctant to speak out on um, you know, an issue that sort of happens to be in the news at the moment without doing a whole bunch of peer-reviewed uh, research that can really um, kind of you know, bolster and, and, um, and provide them with, with a lot sort of evidence base, I suppose, to, to speak from an informed standpoint. But as the conversation has become um, you know, very much uh, sort of consolidated, across the Australian media landscape and internationally as well. Have you got the sense that, um, I guess, working with academics, that they do really see the value in what the conversation does and as a result feel inclined and, and very willing to contribute articles, knowing that it will um, you know, likely reach quite a large audience? It's funny you say that because when we launched, people said, you're absolutely crazy. There's no way in the world you can get an academic to write an article in, you know, a day or two days or even a couple of hours. Um, you know, that's just not going to happen. Um, but it's interesting how good at actually doing that academics have turned out to be. Um, in fact, some of them get a real buzz from it and absolutely love it. Um, and, and you can see why, because the, the sort of the impact can be so great. Um, for example, um, when the Christchurch massacre happened, um, we published an article by an expert in far-right terrorism um, in New Zealand, who was actually studying far-right groups in New Zealand. Now, after that article was published, um, that academic, I think, did about 50 interviews, including CNN, um, MSNBC, like, you know, a massive amount of global media, because everybody was interested in um, his particular expertise. Um, And that sort of thing happens time and time again. If you get the right academic with the right expertise who can shed light on something that's in the news. Um, there are two things you can do. Like The first thing is that you sort of proactively inoculate against misinformation because you've got somebody who is contributing to the narrative, who knows what they're talking about, who is basing their comments on evidence, who is really there just to inform the public. Um, and the second thing, that, second thing that you're doing is you're providing an avenue for the academics um, to speak to a broader public, which really is great for them because if you're, say, for example, an expert on far-right terrorism, you're publishing in a lot of journals, you're going to conferences, you're speaking to colleagues, but you actually want your work to have a broader impact. And when you speak to a broad public about a topical issue, that's really a great way of achieving that. And, I mean, is this now expected of academics? Do you know, um, Misha, that, that they do speak to the public directly in the way that the conversation facilitates? Yes, it is sometimes. Um, and that's a bit of a double-edged sword because we all know that academics have got incredibly large workloads, a lot of pressure. Um, you know, the university sector is going through a very difficult time. And to some extent, I think... You know, when we launched the conversation, one of the great things about it was that um, academics, those that participated, were those that really wanted to do it. They just loved it. They were really passionate about it. And I think when you move to a situation where it becomes an expected part of the workload, um, the dynamic changes a little bit and um, it, it actually adds a dimension to it because we know that we're asking academics to do things on their weekends, out of hours, that you know, for once it was sort of like a work of passion, but now there is a bit of an expectation that, that that's something that they need to do. So we need to be a bit careful about that just in terms of, you know, fairness to the academics and reasonable expectations. But certainly the universities really value the, the 
public engagement that they get. Yeah, and it, I mean, that takes me also to a question I had around funding models. I mean, how does that work? Because obviously the academics are being paid by their university so that, you know, the conversation doesn't then pay them for, for contribution. And then that's kind of the model. You have the editors and you pair together and, and it's really interesting. But how do you make the funding of these kinds of uh, articles and insights work? So basically the conversation is funded by the university sector, so there's 39 major public unions in Australia, um, almost all of them um, fund the conversation, um, and we've also got a team in New Zealand and we've got a whole bunch of universities there and, and all over the world now. That provides about half the funding, it comes from unis, and then the rest comes from um, philanthropic foundations. Um, we used to get a little bit of government funding, but we don't get any government funding anymore. Um, and we get a lot of money now from donations from readers who value the quality information that we provide and, and make a little contribution voluntarily to sort of support the work that we do. Um, so that's that's really how we fund it. And, and as you said, the model is um, we provide basically an, an editing service um, working with the academics. Um, the academics are, are paid and employed by their institutions, so we don't make a separate payment for the, for the actual contributions that they make. And it's really a matter of choice about whether they choose to participate and do that sort of public engagement piece with us or not. We're speaking with Misha Ketchell, editor of The Conversation and celebrating 10 years, um, which it's marking this year. If you're not familiar with The Conversation, which I'm sure you are, but it, it pairs editors with academics to um, produce research-based news and analysis and um, launched here in Melbourne, but also has a whole num- uh, number of outposts internationally as well. Um, kind of interested in, in picking up on um, your comment earlier, Misha, about the role of The Conversation in inoculating against misinformation and we know that that's been, um, you know, a really significant public issue um, for a while now and a significant public issue as well in relation to the proposed um, uh, news media bargaining code as well um, that's been sort of in the news lately. What specifically do you see the conversation's value as bringing, I suppose, to the broader news media ecosystem and um, combating that, you know, potentially really um, uh, problematic impact that fake news and, and misinformation can have on public discourse and societies? God, that's a, it's a big question, an interesting question. I think one of the key things is um, you will see, you know, social media, you know, sites like Facebook have basically changed the rules around what a publisher does and what a publisher is responsible for. It used to be, you know, if you read it in a major newspaper like the Age newspaper in Melbourne or the Herald Sun, um, you were responsible for what you published and you had a responsibility to make sure it was correct and it wasn't misleading people. Um, something like Facebook comes along and it says, basically, it's all user-generated content. You can put up whatever you want. We're not making any um, guarantees about whether it's accurate or not. Um, you know, our business model is to just allow a thousand you know, flowers to bloom. One of the problems with that, of course, which we've seen, is that you get all this misinformation. You get QAnon, you get conspiracy theories, you get anti-vaxxers, you get a whole bunch of stuff spreading that wouldn't have spread in the old media landscape. And the way that um, the big you know, digital media platforms have responded has generally been to go to media outlets selectively and say, you know, here's a bit of money, can you do some fact-checking? Can you, you know, fight the disinformation that way? 
Um, but all the evidence shows that that doesn't work. You can't just go around and say, that's not true, that's not true, that's not true. Because you end up preaching to the choir, you end up talking to people who already know it's not true and not changing the mind of those people who end up in little bubbles spreading misinformation. So the actual thing you need to do if you want to create a better information ecosystem for people who are getting their information in digital environments is you've actually just got to put out more quality information. You've got to be on the front foot putting out things that are accurate, that are reliable, that are true. And that's really what the conversation tries to do. I mean, we're really all about contributing to a healthy media ecosystem just by being good citizens in that space, just putting out stuff that's accurate, helping people stay informed and hoping that that makes a difference. Um, and the other thing that we're really trying to do very actively is um, get to audiences where they are. So younger audiences are much more digitally savvy. Um, something like 69% of our audience is under 45. So we've actually got a very uh, strong younger audience. And we're increasingly cutting up our content and putting it on Instagram and TikTok and really having a really active social media strategy so that in those places where people are now getting their information, they're actually getting information that's accurate. Interesting. And, um, I mean, I've got so many more questions and we're almost out of time, Misha, but I, I wonder about some of the, well, at least one stance I've seen the conversation take and, and you as editor, and that's around zero tolerance of, say, climate deniers. Is that Does that fit in to what you just said then? Um, and also I'm, I'm curious, uh, that was, you know, there was a lot of publicity around that. Are, are there other sort of principled stances that the conversation um, has taken and, and, and may take in the future around things like that? Yeah, I mean, we just believe that we've got an ethical obligation not to spread misinformation. Um, it was pretty much as simple as that. If something is not true, you shouldn't spread it. Um, and actually, fact, it comes from an article we published very early on, not long conversation launched, by a philosopher, um, and it ran under the headline, no, you're not entitled to your opinion, um, Patrick Stokes from Deakin University. And, and he was basically arguing, look, you can think whatever you want about a topic, but unless what you think is actually based on evidence um, and is informed in a way that can make a compelling argument, you don't necessarily have a right to have your opinion disseminated, amplified through the media. Um, and we really think that's true. There's, there's no obligation upon anybody to amplify misinformation. In fact, you know, we're all about doing the opposite. Um, and that's why we took that stance that we're not going to simply continue to spread misinformation, you know, on the basis that somehow it supports free speech or whatever. There's no obligation to, to say things that aren't true. And um, uh, I suppose it, lastly, I mean, I was struck when preparing for this interview about um, the sort of interrelationship that exists between different uh, media practitioners, journalists and media organisations um, in Australia. For instance, you know, Triple R benefits from the conversation. It, it makes it very easy for us to find experts. And, and I read, um, I think it was in your submission to um, the Media Diversity Inquiry, acknowledging uh, that, you know, you often saw images from AAP and AAP of course almost collapsed very recently as well and and I mean going forward what are some of the priorities for you to make sure that that sort of positive interrelationship can exist and that the conversation can continue to provide the sort of fact-based information and, and news and analysis that it has been for the past decade? Well I think it's worth noting that what we do is a little bit different to say what um, 
AAP does, which mm. is different again to say what something like the Age newspaper does. Um, in terms of um, there's a certain reporting function that's really important, just being at press conferences, knowing what information's coming through. There's an investigative journalism function. And we sort of really focus on the quality information end of the, you know, um, journalistic work. But we think that, you know, um, a really strong public um, interest journalism ecosystem is important. So we provide all our content for free to media partners. Um, but we also work really closely with, you know, all the media to try to encourage, you know, strong reporting, um, informed information. You know, we, we sort of want to see our role as being not so much in competition, which is sort of the old model of, you know, you've got a scoop and you're trying to beat the competition and you're not you're not collaborating with anybody. Um, you would have seen over, over recent years, you know, the big investigations now, they're often collaborations between, say, newspapers and major TV programs like Four Corners or 60 Minutes. Um, there's a lot more sort of collaborative work happening in, in the journalistic space. And we think that's really important because ultimately it should be about serving your public and serving your audiences. That's, that's sort of got to be the key objective, not just, you know, trying to, you know, um, compete against or beat the person down the road. Thanks, Misha. Um, congrats to the whole team um, for what the, the conversation has um, become and uh, as we mentioned a few times, you know you've got presence in Africa, Canada, France, Spain, the US, the UK, New Zealand, Indonesia, um, lots of different places, and a um, hundred editors. That's you know really an incredible achievement in ten years. So yeah, all the best. Fantastic. Thanks very much. Thank you, um, Misha Ketchell, editor of the Conversation, and uh, yeah, you can find the Conversation. Just search it, and um, you can see the articles they've got up. And I, I think Misha, in that conversation, mentioned their flood coverage. They, you know, there was an article I was reading this morning that they had up, uh, which talked about the, you know, the. the depression that can follow from things like big flood events, Mm. really fascinating insights that I didn't have before. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Triple R's The Grapevine, a weekly current affairs radio show putting local issues in a global context. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Monday. Hope you enjoyed the show and if you have any feedback or would like to connect, hit us up via the Triple R website.